All right. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Nehemiah again. If you were here last week, you remember that we're spending a couple of weeks on this Old Testament book of Nehemiah. It's found on page 504 of your Bible underneath the chair. If you don't have a Bible of your own. So turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to look today at chapter 2, verses 11 through 20. Nehemiah chapter 2, 11 through 20. And kids, if you are keeping track of the word of the day today, the word is Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. I want you to look for his name in the sermon this morning. So listen carefully to God's word as I read it. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. I wouldn't want to spend much time there, would you? And I, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank you this morning for your grace. That out of your wondrous grace and out of your wondrous love for us, you've given us this passage of scripture this morning to read, to study, to talk about. And so we come today hungry, hungry for eternal truth, truth that matters. Spirit of God, we need your ministry today. We need you to illumine our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears. Open us, Lord, to understand what you've said here, to receive it, and then to live in light of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the sixth Mission Impossible movie is coming out this week. 
Once again, we get to see Tom Cruise drive fast cars, shoot guns, fight bad guys, and jump out of airplanes and buildings and helicopters and boats and who knows what else. Spoiler alert, he survives. At least I think he does. <laughs> when you think about it, though, Ethan Hunt, who is played by Tom Cruise there, is just another version of a superhero. Superhero movies are money these days. Uh, you know, there have been nearly 80 movies based on DC and Marvel characters since Christopher Reeves first played Superman in 1978. 80 different movies. The Avengers movie, Infinity War, has grossed over $2 billion. Why do you think superhero movies are so popular? Well, for one thing, they're just plain fun to watch. The special effects, the cinematography is amazing. They're great stories with universal themes of right versus wrong, good versus bad. The invincible hero coming to the aid of the weak and the helpless. Those are themes that resonate with us and have all down through time. But I can't help thinking that the popularity of superhero movies has something to do with the need that we feel for hope in an unstable world. Superheroes, by the way, were huge after and during the depression of the 1930s. And they made a resurgence after 9-11 in the economic crash of 2008. So you have to think about that a little bit and figure that there must be some correlation between uncertainty and trouble and trials of various kinds and the popularity of these superheroes that come to the aid and come to the rescue of us in need. Michael Shannon, who is also known as General Zod in a couple of the Superman movies, said something that's very true. He said, it's a very delicate time right now here on earth and there's a lot going on that's pretty frightening. It would be nice to believe or to think that there is somebody that could protect us. You know, the Bible speaks about this need of a superhero. Ever since the fall of Adam and the sin, we've been broken people and living in a broken world. Sin has corrupted both us and our planet. And the Bible says that a real superhero is coming. Right after the story of the fall back in Genesis chapter 3, God promises that one day he's going to send a deliverer, not a comic book character, but a real divine person, someone who will crush the head of the serpent, reverse the curse and make all things new. But in the meantime, between the now and the not yet, life can feel like mission impossible. Every day the world, the flesh and the devil conspire against us and throw everything they've got at us. We wish that Captain America or Wonder Woman or even Ethan Hunt would come along because we're in trouble. We're up against things beyond our control. And we need a miracle. Maybe it's your job or your ministry and you feel that it's overwhelming. And you feel like you're sinking under the weight. Maybe it's infertility or the threat of another miscarriage. Maybe it's a prodigal child. A teenager who won't talk to you or a parent who is never pleased. Maybe it's the repeated cycle of sexual temptation and fall and defeat. Sexual temptation, fall, defeat. Some of you look back on your past and all you see is ruins. 
Maybe you were abused as a child. Maybe you were raped as a teen. And you're carrying the scars of shame and self-reproach. Some of you made terrible mistakes when you were younger. Some of you, as Josh prayed earlier, are struggling with depression or loneliness or addiction. And you feel very far away from God. Or maybe, maybe you lost a loved one and the grief is just as real as ever. This past week I had the privilege of teaching a class at Reform Seminary. It's a preaching lab. And I met nine different students from all over the country. And one of them told me that he had just published a book. And I said, oh, really? Uh, What is it about, Cameron? Is it a theological topic? Is it something about uh, being a church leader? And he said, no. A few years ago, my three-year-old son went to sleep and never woke up. I wrote a book about it, and it just came out. And he said, I'm having a really hard week. What are you facing these days that seems insurmountable? What is it that's going to take a miracle in your life? What is it that you just wish that a superhero would come along and take it all away? You know what it is for me? One of my biggest struggles is this voice in my head that won't go away. That keeps telling me that I'm a lousy child of God. Whom God loves, yes, because of Jesus, but who doesn't like me very much. And this voice robs me of my joy every single day. What about you? See, I know the good news. I just struggle to believe it sometimes. I often long for a superhero to end the fight. To quiet that voice and take away the pain. Well, last week we met Nehemiah, a very human character of the Bible. He, too, had a mission impossible. He was cupbearer to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, back in the mid-5th century B.C. I told you about it last week. If you weren't here, I'll just summarize it real briefly. Nehemiah's people, the Jews, had returned from their exile in Babylonia and were now back in Jerusalem, many of them anyway. They had managed to rebuild their temple, but that was about all. The city was a wreck. And some friends came to Nehemiah and they told him something in chapter 1 about how bad things were back home. They said, the people are in great trouble and shame. The, The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah got a leave of absence from the king. We talked about that last week. And he went to Jerusalem to see what he could do. And so here we are in chapter 2. When Nehemiah is beginning to set about the task of rebuilding Jerusalem. What I hope you'll see this morning is that this is not just a story about Nehemiah. It's a story about a gracious, all-powerful God. Who meets us in our weakness. Who lifts up our heads And empowers us for mission. So I want to show you four things this morning. A ruined city. A rested leader. A renewed commitment. And a relentless but conquered enemy. The letter R today. Let's begin with a ruined city. Look at verse 11 with me. 
He says in verse 11, I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. See, Nehemiah goes out under cover of darkness and surveys the damage. There must have been a full moon that night because he can see the walls. And what he sees is awful. It's Berlin after World War II. It's New Orleans after Katrina. Nehemiah says to his compadres there in verse 17, You see the trouble we are in? That word trouble means evil or calamity or sorrow or grief or even wretchedness. It's a really um, vivid word. You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Think of it. The once glorious city of Jerusalem is now a pile of rubble. Um, What a contrast, right? Compared to its earlier days. Like, for example, if you looked at Psalm 48, it's a psalm about Jerusalem. It says, it is beautiful in elevation, the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, the city of the great king. You can just see and, and hear the glory of the city of David, Jerusalem. Imagine how magnificent Solomon's temple must have been back in its heyday before its destruction in 586. Well, these people, the contemporaries of Nehemiah, had heard stories about those glory days, but now they felt hopeless because those were days in the past. Our best days are in the past, they must have said to themselves. They looked at their broken down walls and they felt like giving up. Isn't that a fitting metaphor for the human condition, though? Dan Allender, he wrote a book called Leading with a Limp. And in that book, he says, we are glorious ruins, bent glory. It shows up in every moment of our existence. We are both awful and awesome at the same time. See, like Solomon's temple, human beings were created with beauty and glory. We were one with each other and with God and with nature But sin ruined the picture. And now our hearts and our world are like the walls of Jerusalem. Glorious ruins. And uh, that explains why we struggle. That is why, if you had my experience, when you come home from a wonderful vacation, that old angst returns sooner or later. This is also why, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We yearn for paradise to be restored. We feel what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he called, he was talking about a lifelong nostalgia, a longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which you now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which you've always seen from the outside, and to be at last summoned inside, which would be both glory and honor beyond your merits and also the healing of that old ache. They call Orlando the city beautiful. But the truth is, we too live in a ruined city. Thousands of people here in Orlando are trying to live autonomous lives, independent of God. We're in trouble and disgrace. You see it every day when you're at Target, when you are shopping, when you're at work, when you are in your neighborhood. You see the ruin around you. We are both awful and awesome 
at the same time. But our text doesn't leave us in a ruined city. It has good news for everybody who aches for restoration. So let's move to the second thing we see in this passage. Because into this broken world steps a rested leader. A rested leader. Listen again to verses 11 and 12. Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. Now wait a second, Nehemiah. You waited three days? What the heck are you doing? Why the delay? Get busy, man, we want to say to Nehemiah. No, no, Nehemiah is a rested, resting leader. He's not panicked. He's not impatient to get started. He doesn't arrive on the scene and, you know, call a press conference or start barking out orders. No, for his first three days in Jerusalem, he does absolutely nothing. He Sabbaths. He waits. Soon enough, he'll be a busy man. No doubt about that. Soon enough, he will call everybody together and work around the clock for Jerusalem's restoration. But not now. Now he's going to rest. And I love that. I love that. Nehemiah is never in a hurry. He doesn't have notes to himself scribbled all over the back of his hands. He's not checking his phone. He's not texting while driving. He's not creating wildly important goals. Not yet, anyway. We saw last week that he prayed for four months before talking to King Artaxerxes. And now, with everything in a state of chaos around him, Nehemiah takes a long weekend off. Verse 12 says that he doesn't even tell anybody what he plans to do. It says, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. What do we have here? We have a a patient, secure man, comfortable in his own skin and at peace with God. What an indictment of our crazy, fast-paced, multitasking culture. Most of us probably wouldn't know what to do with three days of quiet solitude. Uh, You might have heard of a book that Tim Hansel wrote a number of years ago that I think is a commentary on our day The book title was, When I Relax, I Feel Guilty. Perhaps that describes you. Sometimes you're sitting in your car at a a red light. And you know how this happens. Maybe you get distracted. Maybe you're looking at your phone or whatever. And the light turns green. And you you stay there for, uh, you know, more than three seconds. And what do you hear behind you? Impatient people. In a hurry to get somewhere. Most of us are in way too big of a hurry. Unlike Jesus. See, like I said last week, this story is not really about Nehemiah. If that's as much as you see in this passage, you're not looking deep enough. This story is about Jesus Christ. Because Nehemiah points forward to a future rested leader. Namely, Jesus. Thank God, right? That we have a Savior who didn't panic when he saw us in our sin. He didn't mount a mass marketing campaign. He didn't march into the halls of Roman government and demand an audience. Instead, Jesus took the scenic route. He chose to be born in a smelly cave. 
to an obscure teenager in a two-bit town. More unbelievable, he waited 30 years before performing his first miracle. He picked 12 inexperienced guys to be his disciples. And he led them for three years before dying on the cross. Yet look what this man, this superhero accomplished. The salvation of the world. Jesus, you see, friends, is a rested leader. He's calm when you're falling apart. He's confident when you're not. And he calls you to rest as you wait and work for his return. Third thing we see in this passage, not only a ruined city and a rested leader, but a renewed commitment. A renewed commitment. After his days of solitude, after his midnight ride around the city, in verse 17, Nehemiah calls a town hall meeting. He says, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And in verse 18, the people reply, let us rise up and build. They were inspired by Nehemiah's careful leadership. And the next several chapters of Nehemiah tell about the renewed commitment of the people to finish repairing their wall. We need to ask the question, why was this renewal project, this rebuilding of the wall, so important? Why was it such a big deal? Well, the wall served two functions. One, it kept the people of Judah safe from their enemies. And two, it helped keep their faith pure and free of idolatry. See, the wall was not meant to keep unbelievers away from God. It was meant to keep believers faithful to God. The wall of Jerusalem was like the church. Plenty of gates for the world to come in. But protection for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Once again, though, we see in Nehemiah, Jesus Christ. He came into this world not just to save a few souls, but to rebuild a kingdom that had been hijacked by evil. I will build my church, said Jesus to Peter in Matthew 16, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See, just like Nehemiah, when Jesus came to earth, he had a plan. He knew what he was doing, and the plan was to trade places with us. He would bear our wounds and our sins upon his own body and take them to the cross and pay their penalty and bury them in the grave and rise again and ascend to a place of glory and power from which he would serve us as our prophet, priest, and king. That's Jesus' reconstruction program. He is now spreading the good news of salvation until it reaches every pocket of unbelief in this world. He is putting broken lives back together again. And one day he's coming back. To right all wrongs, to wipe away every tear, and to make everything sad come untrue. Meanwhile, what does he say to you and me? He says, come, let us start rebuilding. You watch those shows on HGTV? Flip or flop. House hunters. Property brothers. Fixer upper. You watch all those shows? Well, I do too. I'm secure in my masculinity. My wife and I watch those shows. I love how they take these awful houses and 
convert them into a thing of beauty. Well, Jesus loves to flip people. And he loves to flip cities and churches. And he does it through us, his body. Ordinary people like you and me who are gifted in all sorts of different ways. Who simply say yes to his call to start rebuilding. Let's rise up and build, we should reply to Jesus. Come on, let's do a good job with that back to school bash on August 4th. Let's make it a wonderful outreach to the underprivileged and underserved families of our neighborhood. Let's all do something to reach and to bless the 65,000 plus students at the University of Central Florida as well as Valencia and Seminole State in full sail. And it might sound crazy, but what could we do to help plant a church on the other side of the world among the Waning people of East Asia? See, those are the rebuilding projects that we have determined we want to be in alignment with here at UPC. So let us say with the people of Judah, let's start rebuilding. Let's all do something. As I said last week, we can't do everything, but we can do something and everyone can play apart. Let's join Christ as he builds his kingdom and restores the glory. Finally, this text reminds us that we have a relentless but conquered enemy. A relentless but conquered enemy. Look at verse 19. Here we see these uh, three amigos, or three stooges, you might say. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, you're, if you continue to read through the book of Nehemiah, you'll see this is not just this chapter, but throughout the book of Nehemiah, they keep coming back again and again and bothering the people of Judah to try to delay the rebuilding project. But Nehemiah was a strong leader for Judah. He stood up to Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem in verse 20, and he said, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Just as the Jews of Nehemiah's day faced that kind of opposition by the pagan nations around them, so you will feel the claws of Satan as you seek to join Jesus in advancing the gospel. You will. When the devil senses that you're involved in Jesus' reconstruction project, he will set his sights and aim his weapons at you with fierce but subtle determination. Peter says your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. But Jesus stands up to him. Jesus defends us from the one who seeks our ruin. He, he shouts to, to Satan, this far but no further. You see that in a beautiful story, though tragic, in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was being stoned. He is the first Christian martyr, we say. When he was being stoned, he looked up and saw Jesus standing at his father's side, absorbing the blows in heaven, praying for Stephen's faith not to falter and promising deliverance. And that same Savior is praying for you and me as we engage the enemy in spiritual battle and as we get involved in the work that Jesus is doing. 
Jesus says to you and I who live among the ruins, I love you, I am for you, I will meet you in your weakness, I will lift up your head, I give you my spirit, so be strong and of good courage and come join me in repairing the walls. So those are the things that I see in this chapter. Let's go back to the question that I posed at the beginning. What are you facing today? What are you facing this week that seems insurmountable to you? Something that you would prefer to just avoid, to sidestep, maybe have a superhero come and solve it for you. I want to give you three words that I hope you'll take with you that will summarize what Nehemiah has taught us today. Rest, trust, and follow. Rest in Christ. Trust in His love. And follow him in his work. Rest, trust, follow. Yes, it is a broken, messed up world. But it will be rebuilt by King Jesus, I assure you. The miracle is coming. Though you may not see it in your lifetime, Jesus is going to get the victory over evil and paradise will be restored. I told you a little while ago about the student in my class who had just written a book about the loss of his son. The book is titled, Therefore I Have Hope. The student's name is Cameron Cole, and he lives in Birmingham, Alabama. His little boy, named Cam Jr., mysteriously died at age three in his sleep. And no medical cause was ever determined. In his book, Cameron talks about the grief and the questions and the doubt and the sadness that he and his wife Lauren have been working through and will continue to work through as they grieve their loss. The interesting thing is, the day before his death, Cam Jr. asked his parents, and I quote, if he could go visit Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Now, not every story of loss has such a wonderful silver lining. But you can know this morning that no matter your past mistakes, no matter your present groaning or your future tribulation, Jesus, your rested leader, walks among the ruins, seeking and saving that which is lost. There is no impossible with God. He brings life out of death, beauty out of ashes, and joy out of despair. That's why you can sing, as we did earlier this morning, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being the hero of this story and our hero. You came to make all things new and you will not fail. Lord, I'm so aware that some of us are feeling like the people of Judah did in Nehemiah's day. Spirit of God, would you help us believe the gospel this morning? That Jesus is the rested leader of his people, the God of grace and mercy who puts people and things back together again. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit. Fill us with hope. 
We join you, Lord Jesus, in rebuilding the broken down walls around us. Use us to bring your hope and your joy to our neighborhoods and to our city. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.